0: Welcome to Local Bites, the podcast of the International Society for Ecology and Culture, dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. In this show, we'll be featuring critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement for localization. Welcome to this episode of Local Bites. I'm your host, Brian Emerson. Today we're going to discuss what kind of food and farming system we need to feed a growing rural population in an ecologically sustainable and socially just manner. We'll tackle this question by comparing large-scale industrialized food systems with smaller-scale, more ecological and local alternatives. Our guide in this exploration will be Dr. M. Jahi Japel, Director of Agriculture Policy at the IATP, or the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Dr. Chappell holds a Ph.D. in ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of Michigan. He is also the current chair of the agroecology section of the Ecological Society of America. His research combines insights from many disciplines, including agroecology, conservation biology, sociology, political economy, and ecological economics. Chappell has worked with groups like Via Campesina, the Food and Agriculture Organization, as well as urban agriculture nonprofits in the United States. Chappelle's work is dedicated to promoting a more participatory, socially just, and ecologically sustainable food system. Dr. Chappelle, welcome to Local Bites. Thank you. So, to begin, the debate about the future of food usually pits advocates of large-scale industrialized and global food systems against those who promote smaller-scale, more ecological and local alternatives. The mainstream narrative is that large-scale industrial farming is necessary to feed the world. It's more productive and more efficient, especially in regard to labor. Furthermore, as the world urbanizes, the argument goes, we need to produce more food with less farmers. So it's inevitable, we must embrace industrial farming. Meanwhile, in this narrative, small-scale, more ecological farming is said to serve a niche market at best. At worst, smallholders and family farmers are seen as inefficient, primitive in their methods, and consigned to the status of outdated anachronisms. In short, even if they have some laudable benefits, small eco farms are incapable of meeting the food needs of the growing population. So Dr. Chapelle, help us understand the contours of this debate. First off, how do these two farming approaches differ in their methods of production? And maybe in your answer, you could introduce our listeners to the practice and the science of agroecology. Sure.
1: Um, so that definitely, I would say, is the mainstream narrative, uh, which you laid out there, and it's uh, backwards in in almost every account, I would say. Uh, There are these sort of two large poles of the large-scale industrial versus the small-scale agricultural, but it is important to remember there is a whole range of realities on the ground. There are farmers of all sorts of sizes and shapes and kinds and interests, but by the same token, these are sort of the two dominant poles And the industrial one has been for quite some time ascendant. I would say that the industrial scale farm, the large scale farm, I mean, essentially it's an attempt to turn farming into manufacturing, into a factory that you put certain inputs in, you get certain inputs out, measurably the same things each time. And very important, uh, saving labor and decreasing the amount of skill required so that you can hire people as cheaply as possible. The efficiency of large-scale farms has really been uh, oversold, and it's almost never measured in terms of efficiency in terms of resource use. It's efficiency in terms of dollars and often in terms of profits. And so uh, it, it really does concentrate capital and wealth into fewer hands, and is immensely profitable for those hands. And it's at least in the United States and the number of other systems, it has resulted in cheaper food, but that's also due to the number of the policies that we've subsidized it with. United States, we're sort of infamous for our direct subsidies, uh, as well as tons of indirect subsidies, just not taking into account externalities like fertilizer runoff, climate change due to the carbon released from soil, soil erosion, erosion genetic diversity. You could argue, you know, I, I would say the deterioration of our uh, rural community spaces hasn't been accounted for. So it looks cheap because of all these uh, benefits it gets. And it does
0: fit much better into a large-scale commodity that we want to turn stuff into widget. And then in terms of looking at these two contrasting farms, could you say a little bit more about what they look like physically and how they operate? Absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, the
1: large-scale industrial farm, like a factory, they want to, like I said, have everything standardized mm-hmm. and homogenized. So they tend to be almost exclusively monocultures, you know, a whole bunch of uh, one thing, a field of wheat, a field of corn, of soybean, what have you. And I think uh, most ecologists would agree that they, they are essentially a biological desert. There are living things there, but there's a huge attempt to have only one kind of living thing as much as possible, which is actually less diverse than a desert. Deserts have tons of things in them. And it takes, uh, I would say, a lot of resources to make nature, which never appears in a, or very rarely appears in a monoculture, fit into that box. So that's what it looks like, really large one thing. Agroecological farms vary in the way they look immensely. The idea, both socially and biologically, is that context, location, a lot of these things depend. And so there's going to be a lot of variation. And variation is what evolution draws from to create these wonderful adaptations that we see in, in nature. So there's a huge number of agricultural farms. But the baseline idea, which, which you asked earlier about, of agroecology is that agriculture must be seen as an ecological system and a social system. Ecologically speaking, monocultures are just not going to be something that's stable, but that's not how the environment, how nature interacts. Agroecological systems try and integrate that with natural flows, having nutrients recycled, having a variety of different crops that complement each other, having animals integrated into agriculture again so that that nutrient cycle can be closed make it much more a closed system that utilizes resources as optimally as possible. And so you might see, you know, fish pond or duck pond, small forest, you know, agroforests. You're definitely going to see cover crops of some kind in between crops. Um, you might see crops intercropped in between other uh, crops at the same time. So you see a lot of variation, um, and where you are is going to de- determine what that variation looks like.
0: Um, in a moment, I'll ask you to evaluate these two farming methods through a more holistic lens. But first, help us understand how these approaches compare using more conventional metrics. Which method actually tends to yield more food, and what accounts for this difference?
1: Yeah, I'm really resistant to even start with that approach, but uh, it's fair enough. That is how many people view it. I would say, actually, the real answer is we don't know which one yields more. There's not just one farm or one piece of land. So there's always this critique that if you control circumstances too much to have it be scientifically valid, that's not like how the real world is, which is very variable. But if you go out and look at a whole bunch of different kinds of farms and different kinds of factors, then you're not holding things constant, so you're not having a real apples-to-apples comparison. But in terms of yielding a whole bunch of one thing, right now we do see that industrial farms tend to yield a whole bunch of, you know, one kind of corn or one kind of soybean or what have you. But what we don't even have good numbers on, it, just in terms of yield still, is if you look at the whole farm system, At all the food coming off of a piece of land, what yields more, a small agroecological farm or a large industrial farm? Those numbers don't exist because usually we just measure by commodity individually. And so there's a really strong reason to think that agroecological farms yield more if they have the integration and you're looking at all the food and not just one kind of food. And besides that, Soyford et al. had a study in Nature recently, a year or two ago, and they did find that there was a yield difference between industrialized farms and more organic farms I think there's a lot of caveats that go around that, but if we take that as accept what they said, they also said that there's a huge variety in what that means depending on the crop, the soil condition, and if you use best management practices in organic, that gap lessens considerably, In many crops being the same you know, yield for either one.
0: Okay. i want to bring scale into this because I've heard of um, something called the inverse relationship between size and productivity. Does that figure into this at all? Absolutely. That is incredibly important. Um, it's a relationship
1: that is seen again and again. Uh, the most recent research has shown that basically the, the inverse relationship between size and productivity says that small farms uh, produce more per unit acre or hectare than uh, larger farms. And we've seen this in many countries. Amartya Sin, a famous economist, was one of the first people to observe it in India uh, some 30 years ago or so. might be more than that. Other people have confirmed it, including uh, Chris Barrett at Cornell University and his colleagues and students have been looking at it. And it's been proposed that there's different reasons for this because, put simply, economics predicts that there shouldn't be that effect, that large farms should be at the very least just as efficient because you should reallocate your capital in such a way that you'll make sure you're getting the most out of your land no matter what. So economists are a little confused, and this This runs counter to what they think should happen. But they keep seeing it, and Barrett's work has looked at, well, maybe there's imperfections in terms of small farms are better able to hire better quality labor because they have personal relationships. Uh, Maybe there's other market imperfections that are causing it. Uh, They found that there's almost none of that relationship is due to market imperfections, and almost none of it's due to variation in soil quality, which is the other theory. And several other people, Alberto Zeza, um, also recently did a study saying, yep, yeah, we see this. small farms produce more per unit area um, than large farms. This is really, I think, understudied in the mainstream. It's, it's sort of something that's known, but no one focuses on. I think that's another argument against the industrial system, that it actually is more productive in study after study to have smaller farms. But it is harder to have these large supply chains and large commodity things to have lots of small farms. So that's why also it's not favored by the
0: market, because... The people who have the capital, it doesn't favor their model. The converse of this is that larger farms tend to be more productive per unit labor because they're heavily mechanized.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true, though though not per unit uh, of energy, if you look at the, the energy
0: and the resources. Great. Well, actually, that leads into the, the next question. What is left out of these uh, more conventional comparisons that just focused on yield? And you've, you've kind of touched on some of this already, but how do these two farming approaches compare in terms – for instance, of efficiency of water use, or energy use, or other non-renewable resources, or their um, different impacts on the climate, or making uh, jobs and rural livelihoods. What is a more holistic and agroecological comparison reveal that these more conventional metrics fail to see? Well, yeah,
1: basically everything you said, it's right on. I mean, looking at rural livelihoods, looking at uh, rural employment, looking at dietary diversity, looking at direct on-farm effects on biodiversity in terms of conservation and wild biodiversity. And item after item, uh, water efficiency, energy efficiency tends to be at least two times higher on organic agriculture uh, or, or agroecological agriculture, which is more broad than just organic, two times to 10 plus times more energy efficient. I mean, if you think about just the petroleum and mechanization, uh, you know, we know that a very small amount of energy from burning petroleum ends up actually powering that machinery. A huge amount of its loss is heat. As everyone knows who's ever driven a car, you know, there's a lot of excess heat that comes from from that and that's just waste. That's just going into the air and it's generating these byproducts that go towards global climate change which also causes another externality that agricultural methods uh, contribute significantly less to, to climate change, or even can fight it if they're done properly. Again, it varies. There's lots of different people doing different things on the ground. But if you're using sort of the best agricultural practices on a small and medium scale farm, you're probably a net nitrogen fixer or at least something close to equilibrium. So you're not contributing to climate change. You might be fighting climate change. So these are all things that are not taken into account. And I would say that it's for a very simple reason. And there's a nice bit from one point of view from the industrial agriculture, that if you look at yield and profit, you're done. And that's very handy and simple. But if you want to look at livelihood, quality of life, dietary diversity, rural livelihoods, uh, global climate change, biodiversity effects, I mean, you can't condense those down to one number or two numbers.
0: So It seems counterintuitive, but it it has been suggested that industrial agriculture is actually better for the environment. Because of how productive it is, the argument goes, industrial agriculture requires less land. Although now I think you've put this into question, but this is how the argument goes. So it requires less land so we can set aside more of it for habitat and uh, biodiversity protection. How would you respond to this?
1: The short answer is that there's really almost no evidence of that happening. It was a hypothesis that quite possibly could have been true. Uh, Norman Borlaug, considered the father of the Green Revolution, uh, helped develop a lot of hybrid crops. He's one, one of the first people to coin that. It was called the Borlaug Hypothesis, that increasing productivity after the Green Revolution in the you know, uh, sort of 60s through 80s was the single largest environmental benefit that mankind's ever seen because otherwise thousands of hectares of forest would have to be cleared to make the same amount of food. The problem is actually, if you look at the researches, um, Tom Riddell and Patrick Bayfourt, and a number of other researchers have done in the past five to ten years. There's not a solid correlation between increasing productivity and decreasing deforestation. You just don't see that empirically actually happen within countries. Um, it's hard to try and sum up the food for the whole world and look at forest cover for the whole world. Cause that's not as that data isn't as available. But there doesn't seem to be much reason to think that this happens regularly. And I mean, the short answer of that is if you think again, sort of in basic economics, if you make it cheaper and easier to make something, which is what Green Revolution does economically is cheaper and easier to make lots of one thing like corn, then that makes, that means it's, it's more attractive to other investors. You should do more of that. Mm -hmm. And so the basic economic drive is, oh, we can make more corn. We'll just invest in keeping, uh, and making, make more and more and more of it and expand the land under that. And so there's basically there, there's no reason to think that that actually is what happens.
0: Okay. So one of the things that comes out of, of all this is, is that it really matters what metric one chooses in comparing these systems and the kind of questions one asks, um, like food output per unit of what? Per unit of land, labor, energy, and at what cost, not just monetary costs, um, but also social and environmental costs, um, Who and who benefits and who loses. Um, yes. So what we choose to measure reflects particular values and and goals. Profit maximization and mass production with as little labor as possible versus producing sustainable and healthy foods using less land and providing dignified employment and prosperous rural livelihoods. In turn, the metrics we use to evaluate different technologies and farming methods inform or misinform the policy decisions that help shape the food system that feed us. They also help guide choices made by food consumers and, and food producers. So when we start to really interrogate the feeding the world question, we move beyond the purely technical or scientific into more political and normative territory. I, w- I wondered if he might comment on this.
1: You're absolutely right. And so, I mean, there's the, the expression that goes something to the extent of, you know, you get what you measure. Mm-hmm. And so if you measure profit or yield even, then you're going to keep improving those things. But, yeah, that doesn't speak to who's getting it, who's getting the yield and who's getting the profit. And so in terms of the feeding the world narrative, that that's, one of the single largest problems, I think you hit it on the head there, uh, for yield or for profit. We know that in the vast majority of places currently, and even historically, uh, by many arguments, a lack of food availability hasn't been the problem when people are hungry. There's food in that country or that region somewhere, but it's not affordable. As, uh, there's, uh, something like a, a drought, and that often causes a famine because food prices increase, there might be less food, but it's still there. But you can't, you can't afford it. People who have money to buy it are the ones who matter in the market and the poor don't. And that, that's true of of product malnutrition as well. So if you look at just yield, it doesn't say who's getting that yield. And even if you look at profit, which tends to be the sort of next step up in sophistication that we do need to increase productivity because most of the world's hunger, hungry are small farmers. And so the small farmers have better yields of more profits and make more money to be less hungry. And so that's closer to something that aligns with the evidence. But it's still just not quite that simple. uh, Amartya Sin did the groundbreaking work on how people get access to food. And there's the the rights that you have in your society through your government or through uh, cultural networks. There's the uh, ability you have to get paid. There are the other elements, as people expanded beyond uh, Sin and pointed out, the other other elements of your social system that maybe uh, you do have enough money, but you don't have enough money for both food and schooling for your children. Or food and medicine. Well, you're going to choose medicine. You're going to choose maybe to support your children's long-term health by sacrificing your health or even maybe a little of their health by eating less so that they can have access to other vital resources. And so all these things play into whether or not you have food and you can't just measure the the yield and profit and get at all those things.
0: Part of what you're saying then uh, is the question about how to feed the world is not primarily necessarily about productivity per se. It's about distribution, access, That reminded me of another um, issue that I've heard brought up in this conversation is the topic of waste. And also, the food we produce goes to a lot of different industries. Much of it is not even eaten, I guess, by humans anyway. So how much of a problem is that?
1: Absolutely. So uh, the estimates are between 25% and 50% of food is wasted, depending on the country. The estimates are coming down around, I think, around 35% worldwide average. And it's interesting because it's slightly different in richer countries and poorer countries. In richer countries, it tends to be that we're throwing food away, and you you got too much at your at your serving. And certainly, American servings are off the charts in terms of having just throwing food at you um, if you have the money for it. And so you throw a whole bunch of it away. Uh, it goes bad in your refrigerator. You maybe try and uh, store it, or you buy at the grocery store, and it just sits around. So I would say it's absolutely a question of distribution and a question of rights, which is why food sovereignty has had uh, this this growing movement behind it the term food sovereignty, which is the idea that basically to me it's it's democracy restated that people in any given place should have the right to decide what kind of food system they want that's appropriate for that place and that time. And it's a tricky thing because you know what level is the right level to decide that? Is that the national government, the regional government I would say, you know, in line with the localization um, that Isaac advocates, you know, it should be as local as possible. And that's going to require a lot of negotiation.
0: We don't know what that level is for any given system. That's interesting. I would like to get into food sovereignty and localization question and talk about if it relates at all to agroecology and production methods. So up to this point, we've contrasted two different food production systems, large scale industrial and smaller scale diversified um, ecological methods. Another issue in this debate centers around the extent to which food economies should be globalized through corporate free trade regimes, or if we should instead democratize and relocalize food production and consumption, especially staples leaving trade for luxuries or regional shortfalls or so on. You've sort of answered this already, but what's your general take on the question of localization? Is there any relationship between the current export-oriented global trade regime and the viability of agroecological alternatives? Or conversely, is there a positive relationship between small-scale diversified farming and reorienting to local markets? Uh,
1: I would say agroecology and, and relocalization definitely naturally complement each other and make each other stronger. I, I wouldn't say that one is necessary for the other either way around, but they do reinforce each other and they do fit really well together, and each one is stronger for it. So. I mentioned, uh, in my first, one of my first comments, and so agroecology at its best is place-based. You know, ecology varies around the world, and so if you have an agroecology that fits in with the natural ecosystem around you, that's going to have to depend on what ecosystem you're in, which can vary on the scale of, uh, you know, a couple of miles, a couple of kilometers up to, you know, continental scale. And so that variation depends on where you are and, and what's appropriate. Uh, so I would say that's part of the problem with this globalized food regime, as well as the fact that there are stark inequalities in global power and global wealth. And so the more you have sort of a open, free global market, the more that people are competing against each other for basic necessities. In this recent Bali deal for the World Trade Organization, there was some success in India, it seems, to have a program where they could support some of their farmers in order to have food distributed to the the poor in their country. But that's is something the WTO did not want. They they consider that a market distortion and sort of have given India a small exception for four years. But if if you don't have these kinds of locally focused policies, then you have the poor in India trying to out-compete for the food in the world, including Indian farmers trying to compete on prices with American farmers who are subsidized and with other poor farmers the entire world round, plus food speculation, which can be very damaging to the stability and access of uh, poorer people to food. So, uh I mean, I think the, the long story short is that economically the argument is that things will even out for the best for everyone in the long term. Even if there are already really low prices for these farmers and that they can't get access to everything, in the long term they can go to the city or they can move or whatnot. And so really the idea of this globalized economy is that anyone can go anywhere to follow, you know, where the jobs, the prices, the access are. But we know that's not true. Even without immigration law, how easy is it to move from rural India to – United States or Canada or Australia or wherever if that's where the cheapest food and the best uh, wages are Uh, to me it would have to work that way for the theory that we should just have no trade barriers or as few as possible to work out in food you have to be able to move wherever you you want to take advantage of that that's not how it works so what you have instead is that people are stuck in these these pockets where they don't have access to food which I would consider a basic right you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have boots or straps or food very interesting
0: So some food scholars have flipped the productivity problem on its head, arguing that in addition to the problem of lack of access or poor distribution or food waste, some of the things that you've mentioned, we actually face crises of speculation and overproduction often, especially in um, commodity markets, agricultural commodity markets. So what's going on here, and and how does that relate to the question of how to feed the world? You do see that if you have people
1: competing around the world for some kind of globalized markets, and you have all this push from government, from rhetoric to produce more, 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 all the technologies to produce more, and you're focusing, again, sort of on monocultures and single crops, then you can drive the prices really low, especially with subsidies. But even without subsidies, the prices are something can go very low, and there are two problems with that. One, that it can go below the cost of production where no farmer, especially small farmers who might not have extra capital to tide them through a price dip, can't really survive. Or even if you just drive it to low margins, you know, the, the price is higher than the cost of production, but just barely. That's where if you have thousands of acres, you can still survive on that. But if you're only getting a little bit more than it costs you to produce and you're a small farmer, you don't have any room to live in that. Uh, and so we saw with the encouragement of coffee around the world, with even before synthetic rubber, when uh, rubber was sort of spread around the world, that you saw the prices drop out and the people who were originally producing it, uh, Brazil, Brazilian rubber to start with, and, and coffee in various countries before it was sort of introduced into even more. You saw just the price drop out of that and so many small farmers went out of business.
0: So it sounds like part of what's going on is deregulation of supply management mixed with trade deregulation and policies that are driving mechanization lead to overproduction, which sends prices down and you either have to get big or you have to leave agriculture. For many people, that means joining the slums in the global south. Am I getting the story right? I, I would say that that's pretty much right on. Um, and
1: that benefits a lot of people who are not those farmers. In terms of people joining the slums, that means there's cheap labor in the cities now, uh-huh. which the idea is that maybe everyone would go through an industrial revolution like the United States, and they'll start with poor wages for everyone in time. Eventually, everyone will get to the middle class that we have. There's no reason to think that that's the natural order of things that just happens without social struggle and very specific actions, including the United States doing having protectionism when we were generating our own industries, which now is no one's supposed to have. Uh, so yeah, the farmers having an overproduction or a huge production and driving down prices are great for people who are going to buy it and sell it at a high markup, not so great for the farmer.
0: So I'd like to switch gears a little and focus on two especially heated topics, GMOs and climate change maybe we can start with GMOs. So how do they figure into the debate about feeding the world? If, if you look at Monsanto's website, for instance, you get an impression that ag biotechnology is the only way to meet rising food demand while protecting the planet. So how well are GMOs in general delivering on the, the many promises? Well, it depends on what promise you're looking at. It's doing well for those companies that are selling them, uh-huh. and it's
1: doing well for a certain number of farmers. But again, in, in terms of just food, it's not a question of production in most cases. And when it's a question of income for farmers, it's definitely not clear that GMOs do better for them. They have to pay more for the technological agreement since Monsanto owns that still, even after you buy it. They own all that material that you've bought, mm-hmm. and you're just sort of essentially right. licensing it from them. And so uh, uh, some number of farmers are able to make that work, just like some number of farmers are able to make really large-scale monoculture work before, But it definitely doesn't benefit everyone evenly. And just in terms of yield and food, A, we don't necessarily need more food in most places. B, we need uh, food diversity in a lot of places. And so just growing lots more corn or lots more soybeans is not necessarily what you need, or lots more cotton not necessarily going to be uh, uh, better for you. And C, actually, the uh, research in terms of yield increases is only – relatively strong in cotton, from what I've seen. But then, cotton, the story is very mixed in a lot of other ways. Uh, in soy and corn and most of the other GM crops, uh, Jack Heineman, a professor, I think in New Zealand, um, uh, did a study comparing yields in Europe, which by and large doesn't have as many large-scale GMO crops, very few GMO crops compared to the United States, where most of corn and soy and a couple of other crops are GM. And they've had comparable yields For the past several decades, and in some cases actually increasing their yields more than we did, and they have very little penetration of GMO into their crops. So just looking at that broad scale, there's not really good evidence that we've had any kind of advantage in yield from this new technology, Um, and a number of other smaller scale studies have mixed results, but there definitely is consistent evidence that GMOs are doing some fantastic new thing for yield.
0: So biotech companies are also trumpeting so-called climate-ready seeds as necessary for responding to the vagaries of climate change. Uh, what's your assessment of these claims?
1: Yeah, uh, all that's absolute hogwash three ways from Sunday. They There has been uh, one or two seeds released that they claimed were sort of on a step towards this climate-ready. I, I can't recall the exact name of it, but uh, Doug Green Sherman and other scientists at the Union of Concerned Scientists in the United States looked at those and they actually yield less than the conventional varieties. And so there have, there's only been a small release of, of, I think, one or two varieties that they claim are on a step towards what will be climate ready. There's no large scale climate ready release that I, I'm aware of at all. It's uh, the technology of the future and always will be, as the saying goes. Ken Kassman, who's an agronomist who, who does tend to talk about the need to increase productivity. He and I disagree on a number of things, but, and he is very uh, positive on technology, biotechnology, GM as a general tool. But he actually uh, has said it at a conference and several other times I've, I've seen him talk, he doesn't think this climate-ready thing is going to work out because climate resistance, uh, drought resistance, climate variability, these are complex multifunctional traits. And at least the GM that we have right now and for the foreseeable future are best at altering one trait, two traits, you know, expressing a, a pesticide or being resistant resistant to a pesticide. That's not a complex trait that requires a lot of balancing between you know, absorbing this, absorbing, you know, salts and being resistant to this kind of thing. And, you know, drought resistance is a, not a simple trait or climate readiness. I mean, what that, that actually is even less specific than drought resistance. Uh, what we're saying is ready for all sorts of kinds of variation. For one thing, we know uh, there's just another study recently in uh, uh, public library of science plus, um, looking at cotton, actually GM cotton, and they found as many, many studies have found that agroecological diverse farming has more stable yields that as you go year to year the conventional crops and the gm crops fluctuate a lot more they basically they need an optimized environment and uh it seems unlikely that biotechnology is going to get around that you know diversity is really the key to that and adaptability and inventing a new thing for every variation is not
0: going to i I think in, in a lot of time we're not going to cut it could you elaborate on that what would a more agroecologically informed approach to climate change look like?
1: Yeah, no, I think um, something just founded much more in diversity and founded in uh, locally focused but globally connected communities. You know, I think one of the misconceptions about the idea of localism that I see, at least, is very few people I know are talking about, you know, closing your borders for every community. You're talking about generating more resilience by having more things available locally and having a local economy that's strong and connected with itself. But still having the ability, I mean, not closing the, the door, you know, if there's a, a, a drought, a climate disaster or something, that you can still use those networks, global networks, to maybe get resources through aid or just straight trade. But uh, the idea is that you should have that local focus first and draw on the net, network for, you know, circumstances like that or for things that, you know, you can't grow locally. But so having diversity, I think, is just absolutely, I mean, that's the very basis of evolution is diversity. Without diversity, you know, you might have the winning combination for this situation, but you're wiped out the next one. And so I think that, that's the, the long and the short of it is we need diversity within crop cultivars. We need diversity in terms of what's grown in different regions, uh, diversity within farms,
0: a diversity of strategies. Really interesting. The last question is, and what can ordinary citizens do to promote a broader and quicker transition to a more just and sustainable food system?
1: We need people learning about these systems and deciding, I think, in a very deeply democratic way, what kind of system they want, becoming educated about systems. One of the things I've been thinking about is there's a lot of literature and interest right now, and it's called deep democracy or deliberative government governance, um, participatory governance. And basically there's lots of different ways to do this, but having average people, average citizens involved in the decisions that affect them. And I just imagine how different that would be if you had – some of that power and opportunity vested in more average citizens at these international negotiations. It would take, you know, a lot of changes in how we run things to, to get there. But I think the most important things people can do is start being involved in your community. Urban agriculture, I think is an exciting thing. It's growing. It helps you learn about how the food system works, provides food security for some people when it's done right. Uh, forming these links and talking about issues that matter. And starting to form those next links, talk to the urban ag group in the, the county next to you, form a, a national or, or regional organization, building this infrastructure where we can talk to each other as citizens, and then really demand, I think, a much more accountable system that speaks to what the average person wants uh, much more significantly. Uh, Francis Morlepay had said recently at the World Food Prize, you know, we're uh, consciously heading down a path towards a system that is going to affect all of us, yet none of us would choose individually. And so it's going to be complicated, but I think that we have that capacity. There's research like the late Eleanor uh, Oster on how local groups can make very wise decisions. Um, Helena Norbert-Hodge, actually, uh, from reading one of her books, I learned about the work of Walter Goldschmidt yeah. and the Goldschmidt hypothesis on how uh, communities with smaller farms and smaller businesses had much higher social welfare. And you've seen that replicated in the decades since then. So, you know, forming these strong local connections in your community and getting beyond just your circle of friends, talking to people who maybe you don't agree with and working with them on real projects. That's going to be a complicated process, but I think necessarily complicated, just like democracy is, is complicated too. Dr. Chapelle,
0: thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. You've been listening to Local Bites, a podcast series from the International Society for Ecology and Culture, dedicated to the revitalization of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Join us next time for another episode of Local Bites.